Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh delivers a message on the subject of singleness for the glory of God. In this sermon, we are shown some of the reasons why God calls some to a life of singleness. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Joyful Singleness for the Glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to read the first nine verses together, but reference several other parts in this chapter, still in brief break from the book of Romans, and we entered a quick little series here. Last Sunday, we looked at um, uh, marriage for the glory of God. This week, we're looking at joyful singleness for the glory of God, followed by next Sunday, family faithfulness family flourishing for the glory of God. So let's turn our attention to the word here. First Corinthians chapter seven, let's read the first nine verses and then we'll pray. Beginning in verse one. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Please pray with me. Sovereign God, Father, we come to you only because of what you have done in Christ. This is our only access We are unworthy sinners that unless we have the blood of Christ applied to us, we will face an eternity of wrath. God, as a church family, sons and daughters bought by the blood of Christ, brought near by you, we come and seek your face. We ask God for the grace that you will show us your truths. We ask God that more than just head knowledge, knowing about the Bible, that Lord, through your truths, it will have its intended effect that God, you show us yourself. That we see your glory, your ways, the ways you've designed numerous parts of your creation to help us to understand your majesty, your supremacy, Father, that we will through these things. I I ask God that as we study this truth, that it won't be just about one specific thing, just one subject, but Lord, bigger than that, that through seeing these truths, we come to understand a greater worldview, the truth in general, the reality of how you have made this world, the reality of what is, the reality of what is to come, that we comprehend who you are and what you are doing. So God, I, I pray, teach us in this manner, yes, but I pray, bring it to bigger than that, that we see all things rightly. There are just a multitude of things that need to happen if this time is going to be beneficial. I ask God that you do all of them. Please, God, help me to preach rightly, not to say wrong things, foolish things, and all of us, oh God, to receive your word. Father, please teach us and bless us. Protect this time and glorify your name. Prepare worship for yourself by working in us, O God, to see and believe and be changed. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Amy Carmichael came to faith in Christ at an early age. Even in her youth, even in her teenage years, she began to develop kind of uncommon affections for God deep and intense yearnings to serve God with her life, even in her younger years. 
There was a certain, there were certain pivotal moments that uh, Miss Carmichael notes uh, as significant events in her life in times of worship, at times that she would be uh, reading the Bible for herself, or times that she was out praying. There were certain moments that she sensed that the Lord was stirring in her some bigger kinds of affections. Even in her early years, she resolved, I'm going to serve the Lord. Now, I know they're saying something like that can sound kind of basic. But if you read the Bible at all, you know that there's a difference between just simply calling yourself a Christian and occasionally showing up to church and then someone who says, I'm here for a purpose and by the grace of God, I'm going to do it. Amy Carmichael, even in her youth, resolved, I'm here for a purpose by the grace of God, I'm going to do it. Throughout her worship in her early years, she, she came to a number of conclusions she came to that conclusion, I'm, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to do it for real. And then she came to the conclusion, I'm going to serve God by caring for the poor. Later, she came to the conclusion, I'm going to do this in other countries. And then she also came to this conclusion. I'm not aware of any vows that she ever made or promises that she said to God. But she concluded that a life of singleness would be the most effective way for her to do this. Now, she desired marriage. It wasn't like she thought of marriage in a family like, ick, no, she, she had parts of her that longed for this. She thought of a family life and a stable home, a husband who loved her and, the, and the, the comfort that that kind of life can bring, the security that that kind of life could bring. And there are parts of her that longed to have those things. But the greater part of her saw that there were certain things that she could only do if she decided not to marry. She realized the meaning of life very deeply at an early age. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. She chose to give up some comforts and joys and blessings of this life for greater usefulness, for the greater reward, for the kingdom of God. On the day that she was going to set sail for India, even on the docks while she was there, she doesn't say much about it um, in her writings, but she does mention that a man in her life approached her and tried to convince her to stay and eventually marry. She admitted that there was a part of her that longed for that, but she had come to this conclusion that she wanted to serve God in a different kind of way, a different kind of ministry. Now, there are a lot of things that I'm going to say today that could be misunderstood. I'm still going to say them. And I ask you to hear them carefully. I ask you not to maybe run to some conclusions that you might think it's going to, but the Bible has a position that is not often understood even in the church in regard to marriage and singleness. And so along the way, I want to try to make some things clear. Listen to me very carefully. If she had chosen marriage and family, being a wife and a mother is ministry. And you who are in that beautiful calling, I beg you to view it as ministry. That there's a difference between just existing in a family and then doing it well. Training up a family, there's a, there's a big difference. And next Sunday, we're really going to talk about that. But one of the things that we also need to see is that some choose a different path a different ministry. And in some cases, so here's one of the statements that could be misunderstood. I ask you not to. In some cases, those who choose singleness are choosing a more critical ministry. You know that we constantly give the call for husbands and wives, fathers and mothers to see their calling in these roles as higher than what the culture around us does, to view it as a ministry with eternal significance. But that still doesn't change the fact that some choose to do without that blessing and go the route of a ministry that brings even greater reward. Family ministry done well will have great reward. 
but there are some in history and some today who choose a different route in order to free themselves up for some ministry that is on an even more critical place, like Paul traveling around planting churches in the years at a time that he would have been gone and would not have been possible had he had a family to care for. Amy Carmichael was presented with an opportunity for marriage and family. It would not have been evil. It would have been a good, good route. But she did choose to serve the Lord in some specific ways. She made her way to India with the purpose of ministering to the multitudes of poor who were there specifically. She was drawn to care for the absolutely atrocious conditions that many children were living in specifically the Hindu temples would often enslave children as sex slaves. There's so much more to the story. You would find it fascinating if you'll do some more reading on her life and inspiring as many Christian biographies are, but I got can't tell everything every day. Let me skip to kind of the end here and talk about the result of her life. Through her effort, Amy Carmichael brought thousands thousands of children out of poverty, out of sex slavery, and into a home where they were cared for and obviously shared the message of salvation in Christ with them. Amy became a mother. They, they called her affectionately Amma, which means mother. And at one time in her ministry, she had 900 children as a result of her life. Of course, there were thousands and thousands who were physically cared for and came into her home and put back out into the community, but also hundreds, if not thousands, by extension of her influence of souls came to trust in Christ and were saved out of darkness and into light. But the cost was one of great loneliness. There were times where her loneliness was so great that she admits she nearly quit. There were times where the emptiness and heartache that she knew from her conditions were so great that she would have to go off by herself, have some times of worship, call out to God, weeping and beg for grace just to keep going. And every time she confesses, he gave enough. God never made it easy, like flip a switch and oh, now it's, Smooth. No, God never made it easy. And that's part of why she has such great reward. But God gave her enough grace. Never walked in ease, but knew the comfort and grace of God. I think that's some of what can often be misunderstood when we talk about singleness. I think sometimes when we as Christians talk about singleness, we can talk about that there are some who are wired up who just don't desire marriage at all, but that's not everyone who chooses singleness. Some who choose singleness do so with great heartache. Some who live in singleness are hoping to marry one day, just in the Lord's providence, he has not yet allowed that to happen. But I think Miss Carmichael has been one of those that God has given to model service to the Lord in singleness well. You know, in the church, there's oftentimes not a lot of study about singleness, which is kind of crazy because every single one of us spends some season there. We all begin that way. We endure through tumultuous teenage years filled with temptation. But then also you who are married consider this as well. If you are married today, it's possible you could be single by tomorrow morning. And unless you and your spouse die at the same moment, you will face singleness again. All of us spend some time in singleness for various folks. It's a longer season and for some it is a lifetime. Well, all of the conditions of singleness are addressed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You'll see some various uh, titles used here. Uh, the not yet married, 
So you youth or those who are uh, on your way hoping to one day marry, you are addressed in this passage as well. Whenever it will speak of virgins, it's generally believed that when this passage talks about the unmarried, those two terms are used um, next to each other. We know he means two different things. It's generally believed that he's speaking of those who are divorced. And then also the term widow is used in this passage as well. So all of those states of singleness are addressed in this passage but there are principles that apply to all of it. And friends, it's important for the church to have a right view of these things. Now, sometimes Christians who we value marriage and we should, we are an influence in the culture around us that does not treat marriage as sacred. We are an influence constantly calling them to see the design of God and how he's made marriage to be sacred. But sometimes we can misunderstand then that kind of thing and we can speak in such a way that implies marriage is God's plan for everyone and it is not. Sometimes we can even be hurtful in the way that we speak of singleness and marriage and these kinds of things. The church has often failed to view these matters biblically. There's actually a way that you see this truth and God connects it with the greater story and the greater worldview of the understanding of all of reality. That's part of what I hope to accomplish this morning as we look at these things. Scripture shows God has different plans for different people, And this passage makes the argument. So here's kind of a central idea when it comes to addressing the singles here in chapter seven. This passage makes the argument that there are some advantages to singleness and it speaks to singles and calls you to consider. It never lays the demand, never gives the command like you gotta do this or you don't really love Jesus. That's never spoken like that, but it gives a call for you to consider singleness, if you are gifted by God to do that. So let's walk through this morning, this passage. I want to do it in three parts here. We're going to first start looking at uh, the gift of singleness. Secondly, the blessings and a warning concerning singleness. And then lastly, try to end with some practical application. So number one, let's talk about the gift of singleness. Real quick recap of what we saw in the previous verses last Sunday. The Christians at this church that this letter came to in the city of Corinth, they had written Paul a letter where they ask him various questions about the Bible and he addresses them throughout the letter. You can constantly see him say, okay, you ask this question, here's what the Lord says about this. And a part of all of that, they had asked a number of questions concerning marriage, sexuality, divorce, singleness, etc. And chapter seven is all about those questions. There are a number of them asked and addressed in the passage. But here's the one that he begins with. These Christians had written to Paul, and what's really ironic, I think is really cool, is is whenever I, I teach young people sometimes in the schools, they will sometimes ask the very questions that we find here in chapter seven. And I've had young teenagers ask me this exact question right here. Pastor Josh, does a, does a Christian have to get married? Or is it okay to live single? It seems to be the very first question that was asked here. So if you look in the very first verse there, concerning which you wrote, he says, no, a Christian doesn't have to marry. It is good if a man never touches a woman, meaning never has sexual intimacy with a woman. If a woman never has sexual intimacy with a man, part of one of the big points of the passage here that you do need to understand is that the only way to honor God while single is to live chaste, that is to live without sex. And because that is a difficult thing, he says that for most people, God's design is marriage. He makes the point that for many, if they tried to live unmarried, they might eventually fall to sexual temptation or like verse nine says, they might live burning, meaning burning in lust. So he says that it is the general principle that most are to marry, but some have the gift of singleness, meaning an ability to do it and then to do it well without falling. So with that said, there's a a perspective here that many find surprising. Scripture makes the appeal to you who are single to consider remaining single. 
But he says there in verse seven, I'll just you know, point you to the verse that talks about the gift. He back, back up in verse six, he says there, I say this by way of concession, not of command. He repeats that kind of language over and over again. So I emphasize, look, I'm not making a demand on you. I'm not saying if you marry, you're in sin. No, 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 I'm, but I'm appealing to you. Verse seven, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Paul lived single. He states later in chapter nine that he could have married. That was an option to him. He said, I could marry a Christian wife. But he, he tells that he chose not to for the sake of enabling and freeing up his life to be able to do the immense travel that he did and the dangerous work of gospel missions that he did. Verse seven, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So what does that mean? If some have the gift of singleness. Well, he's saying that both the virtues and the character, the personalities, the gifts from God that are um, enable you to marry and to do it well or to live single and to do it well, they are gifts from God. Now that word gift doesn't mean like somebody hands you an ice cream cone and says, you know, here's a gift. This is gift used in the same way that later on in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, the gifts of the spirit are mentioned. Meaning that you who are in Christ, you have certain ways that God has gifted you to serve the kingdom of God, to serve believers and to serve the lost in coming to faith in Christ. There's the gift of teaching, the gift of hospitality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This also includes the gift of marriage and singleness. These are ways God has formed you to be useful. Some, like Paul, like Amy Carmichael, like some of the other apostles, some of the apostles were married, some of them were unmarried. Singleness was a way that they were able to leverage their lives for usefulness. But, but they're called gifts. And I think maybe along with that, a way to view that, and I think this is a helpful clarification as we talk on these things. Your relationship status, marital status or singleness, it's not the sum of your identity. It's not the whole of who you are. Look over to, it's still the same chapter here. Flip over to verse 29, a section where he comes back to some of the singleness there. Verse 29, he says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. The theology in that little paragraph right there is speaking to just our worldview in general, how we view all things, how you view your house and your cars. What it is saying is we are no longer to view, now that we are in Christ, we are no longer to view this life as the place where I get my all. This isn't where I get my ultimate. This isn't where I get my fulfillment. Everything that is here is going to burn. Everything that is of this world is temporary. And Christian, that includes marriage. We are to live in such a way so as to maximize our lives and usefulness for the kingdom of God. Your marital status or single status, it's not the whole of who you are. We are to live knowing that short, life is short. All that matters is the kingdom of God. All that matters is that my life is useful. All that matters is how I live out this purpose of glorify God, bring souls into the kingdom, strengthen citizens of the kingdom. All that matters is that when we stand before God, we have been faithful and we have lived this life in the way that he calls us to. We are to see that as our ultimate. Christian, what defines you? is way bigger than the ways that sometimes we're tempted to define ourselves according to our job or our, our hobbies or your marriage or singleness. Listen to Galatians chapter three for a moment. Galatians chapter three, very quickly here, starting in verse 26, speaking to Christians, if you are not in Christ, you have a different identity. But for you who are in Christ, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. And there's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. This is a necessary statement for both marrieds and singles. What defines you is something bigger than this. If your marriage, or excuse me, if you're married, listen, your marriage does not complete you. That's not what makes you whole. You know, sometimes there's kind of this idea, once I get married, then I can be happy. Then I'll be complete. Then I can really start my life. Sometimes unmarried have this idea, once I find the magical one, then I can be happy and my life will be the fairy tale that it was meant to be. That's not to be the reality. I mean, it, it could be. You could define yourself entirely by marriage, just like somebody could say they're not able to be happy until they make a million bucks, but that's a pathetic way to live. Who you are is who God created and redeemed you to be. Look at chapter six, verse 19. This is all still a part of this passage here of, of 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Speaking again to Christians, this is not the case if you have not yet turned to Christ, but you who are in Christ, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's your identity. That's who you are. Your marital or single status is a temporary part of your identity. And for just a moment, consider this. For you who are married, your marriage is not eternal. Jesus explained pretty clearly that marriage is a covenant that is lifelong for this life and does not continue in the resurrection. Does that matter? You bet it does. Because while, again, we call the culture who treats marriage in a profane kind of way to view it in a sacred kind of way, it's also possible for us to overstep and to start to treat marriage like an idol, like it is the purpose of life. When married folk your marriage union, that covenant is not eternal. It is a temporary state. And if you are single, your singleness is temporary. We who are in Christ, we are going to be joined in Christ in an eternal covenant, not in a romantic way. Don't misunderstand the metaphor, but marriage was designed to be a picture. Marriage is a temporary picture of an eternal state that we will have in union, covenant union with Christ. So whether you are married or single, your current status is momentary. It is a gift. We are to use this one precious God-given life to magnify our opportunities. Singleness is spoken of as a gift, which means not everybody could do it well, but singles, consider it. That, that's the call going on here. Well, here's point number two. The blessings and a warning of single life. So in this passage, there is uh, uh, several smaller blessings. There's one major one that's spoken of the most, but there's also a warning here. And there's much more I'd like to address, but we can only say so much each Sunday. So let's look at this blessing. So number one here, the blessing that he refers to in this passage is that singleness frees you up to be able to serve in some tangible and intangible kinds of ways. Singleness frees up your time, your resources and attention so that you can serve the kingdom of God more. And the greater the service, the greater the sacrifice, the greater reward on the last day you will have because of that. We just looked at uh, verses 29 to 31 there. Look at verse 32 of chapter seven. Look and see what he says here. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. The one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. But this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure Watch this phrase, 
undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, to the one who's not born again, what I'm about to say will probably sound nonsensical to you. Pray that you would be born again and be given eyes to see. But to the Christian, every Christian will sympathize this. Friends, when you catch the vision of all that matters, all that matters is the kingdom and the glory of God. My stupid money's gonna burn. Who cares? All the trophies, all the accolades, all the promotions and successes, it's all gonna burn. All that matters is the kingdom of God. And then this zeal begins to develop. I want to use this life. I want my life to count. I want to serve him. I want to share the gospel. I want to feed the hungry. I want to help Christians. I want to help the lost come to Christ. And this begins to become a passion within you. What scripture is saying is that for all of us, married or singles, we are to begin to orient our lives, to cut out distractions in some cases, to, to, to sometimes cut out good things that keep us from the great things, to be able to orient our life in such a way that we maximize our usefulness for the kingdom of God. And there is an appeal here meant to inspire Singles, consider, consider what you might be able to do if you used your life in this way, like Paul, like others down through the centuries. It is not God's plan for everybody. This passage said for most, marriage is the most God-honoring way you could live. For some of you, marrying young, Having babies and raising up armies of followers of Christ would be the best way that you could honor God. But for some, for some who have this gift, there is a way that you could leverage your life to maximize usefulness. That's the appeal here. That's the appeal and that's the inspiration. And so again, there's so much here that could be misunderstood. He's not calling marriage bad. Of course not. Marriage says, the, or the Bible says marriage is good, but there are opportunities that singleness can have. Well, what kinds of opportunities? Well, you can throw out things like time and resources and then a, a, a deeper one here. If you throw out just financially there, take a man who made, I don't know, just throw out a number there, 30 grand a year. And he had a family. Raising a family is expensive. It's totally worth it. I promise my kids are in the room. It's totally worth it, okay? But it is expensive. And then take the single man who makes the same amount. His life is, now here's how the world thinks. Oh, that guy can play more. Here's how the Bible says to think. That guy is freed up to be able to use his resources for the glory of God. Here, here's a quick little illustration. If you're familiar with Tim Tebow, Tim Tebow's family um, had a, a, a member of their church family who was a single man and got linked up with their family. I, 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 this is one of the beautiful parts of church family, that those who are not related by biological blood, we become related by the blood of the Savior and family bonds form. And this is a regular thing that happens in the church that singles oftentimes get connected in a family. And by the way, church family, you who are married, this is one of the ways we serve singles who may struggle with loneliness and such. The Tebow family adopted this man as part of their family. He ate supper with them. He went to the kids' ball games. And when the Tebow family decided to move overseas and do the work of missions in orphanages and share the gospel very similar in ways to Amy Carmichael, he decided to go with them and actually funded a great deal of their ministry and built orphanages. That guy left a legacy on this earth and even leading to some of the ways that even, even Tim Tebow himself in the thousands of people he's been able to share the gospel with. There's a way that he leveraged his life for the glory of God. But this passage also mentions a deeper, kind of a deeper it factor. That intangible you can't hold it in your hands and it's kind of hard to describe factor of, here's how verse 35 words it, undistracted devotion to the Lord. If a single man developed undistracted devotion to the Lord and decided to get equipped, 
He caught the vision of all things for the glory of God. Decided to step up and step into ministry. Imagine, imagine the books he could read to equip himself. Imagine the time with a mentor he could spend. Imagine the classes that could be taken. He could learn Greek and Hebrew. Imagine the conferences, every great conference on the planet. All of these things to equip himself for service would be possible. I know one man who married, but he married just a little bit later in life. And he wanted to serve in ministry, so he went to Bible college. After Bible college, he went off to Minneapolis to be discipled by John Piper. Then traveled to D.C. to be mentored by Mark Dever. Then went and did seminary training. By the time he stepped into ministry, that dude was equipped in a way that the rest of us pastors just kind of drooled over and it showed his leadership was phenomenal. He used his single years well. I know another man who married, but a tad later in life. In his teenage and early uh, single years, he would spend four hours a day in study and meditation of the scriptures. And when he preaches, wow, it shows you're meeting with someone who has met with God. Or another example, a friend of this church, the man who does the missions to North Korea, I can't say his name because we're being recorded right now. That man would not be able to do what he does, be gone as long as he is, and may not be as willing to step into the dangerous situations that he does if he were married and beyond that, while he is here, the entirety of his life is devoted to ministry in the local church. I mean, ministry is what he thinks about. It's what he dreams about. It's what he lays in bed and thinks about. For crying out loud, the man named his dog Lottie after Lottie Moon, the missionary. All of his attention is intent on building the kingdom of God. There's a level of attention, service, and undistracted devotion that he gives to ministry because of this. That's the primary blessing that this passage thinks of. And Christian, we will see it on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment when all is revealed and all works are shown, we will see it was a glorious thing to remove all things from my life, even us married folk, to remove distractions from our lives to be able to serve the Lord when we are rewarded for the deeds done in the body. We will see the honor that is bestowed and we will see it was worth it. Well, here's the second blessing that I want to point you to. It's leaving 1 Corinthians 7, but I think this is a really critical one to see. After seeing those things, I, help, I think it helps us understand some other promises of the Bible. Track this reasoning with me. In Isaiah 53, you don't have to turn there, but even as I say that, I'm hoping you like identify that. You know, that's the passage on the suffering servant, the, the, the promises of the Messiah who was to come. It was written 700 years before Jesus came to the earth, but yet you can read that chapter and just see this is exactly Jesus. Talks about his redemption, his resurrection. And there's a phrase in verse 10 that says this, the Messiah will see his offspring. What does that mean? Because Jesus didn't marry. Jesus lived single. He never had physical children. So who's this offspring? Well, you know the answer to that. This is speaking spiritually. The, the Bible establishes the principle that when you lead someone to faith in Christ, they become like a spiritual son or daughter to you. This is some of the significance of Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. You must be born again, spiritual sons and daughters, spiritual parentage. Well, on the heels of saying that in Isaiah 53, listen to the very opening of Isaiah 54. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed, for the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. How, how is that possible? We know scripture teaches that children are a blessing, a heritage. Blessed is the one who has many, many of them, a quiver full of them, scripture says. What a weird place we are in culture that they do not view children like that. But in the ancient world, a woman unable to bear children would have, been ashamed, would have been ashamed of that. But here God says this, you who are unable to have children or you who do not marry, 
If you serve the Lord, you are at no disadvantage. You serve him and you take part in souls coming to salvation. You will have more sons and daughters than you ever could have had physically. And then in Isaiah 56, so just a couple chapters later, it follows up and addresses eunuchs. So men who were infertile either from birth or rendered infertile, unable to produce children, a eunuch might look at his life a bit depressed and say, after I'm gone, no one will remember me. I'll have no heritage, no namesake. After I die, that will be it. I have no way of leaving anything beyond myself. But that's only worldly thinking. What God explains is that through serving him, bringing souls to him, he said, you will have a name greater than if you had had multitudes of physical children. Do you see the principle here? The principle here is this. If, if you give up, marriage or children, or even just unable to have these things, it's you, if you serve the Lord, the honor that you will receive is better than that of sons and daughters, just physical sons and daughters. You are at no disadvantage. You will acquire a better name. And then number two, because of the principle of spiritual children, you who serve Christ by bringing souls into the kingdom, they will be your sons and daughters there. You know, Proverbs 31 says that the godly mother, her children rise up and call her blessed, meaning they speak of her greatness in front of others. I sometimes wonder when I'm reading that on Mother's Day, when we choose to read that passage, if there are some that that passage is a sting to, to the, to the woman who has not been able to conceive or to the unmarried. What the Bible is saying is don't let it sting. You who are serving the Lord, telling the gospel of Christ, you who feed the hungry, you will have sons and daughters and they will bless your name. If we had more time, there are more blessings that scripture makes mention of that I'd love to show, but can't say everything every Sunday. Let's keep trekking. Let me give one warning that scripture addresses here in 1 Corinthians 7. There's one primary warning that is given here, and that is this. The only way to honor God in singleness is to do so in obedience to God's law concerning sex and sexuality, both the physical acts and the lust that is there. If you are single, this really is a big deal. It really is one of the big tests in your life of do you submit to the Lord Jesus Christ? because it's difficult. There's this whole movement in our culture of re rebelling against what the Bible says concerning sex and, and, and there's all of this language, all of this talk, but it basically boils down to this one thing. Obeying God in this regard, it is difficult and that's why it matters. That's why we, it is a, the test that it is. The scripture is always showing the way that you demonstrate that you have faith and submission to Christ is by your obedience. So you who are unmarried, you who are widowed, you who are single in whatever form, whatever fashion, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you acknowledge that he is king of the cosmos? Do you regard him as your master? Do you, re do you submit to him? Well, you will show that in a lot of areas, obedience in regard to sex is one of them. The Bible shows that anything outside of the covenant union of marriage is rebellion against him. And to do so deliberately and to do so in an ongoing way, just like any other sin, it is rebellion to God. It is a high-handed, I don't care what you think kind of defiance. But while I said, just like any other sin, I also want to make this clear as well. Have you ever heard that statement? It's thrown, a lot of, thrown around a lot of times in Christianity, but I, I believe that it is wrong. Have you ever heard that statement, all sin is the same, none is no worse than the other? I, I really just believe that's a severe misunderstanding of the scripture. This afternoon sometime, read chapters six and seven, and I believe that point is made. Sins do have varying degrees of their grievousness against God that there are some that are higher or lesser. All sin is worse than what we think it is. 
Even the sins that we may think of as little, they're not little to God, but that still doesn't change the fact that some of them are more grievous to God. And he describes that sexual sin is in that category, that it is a big deal. It is a major way that we are to honor him. So if you are single for however long you have this season, this is part of how you obey him. Flee from this sin. Yes, you're going to be weird. Yes, you're going to be looked at as strange. Yes, the guys in the locker room will mock you endlessly. Yes, yes, all of that stuff. Be mocked, honor God. If you have been sinning in this way, repent of it. Which means to confess it to God and then turn your back on it and make the steps to leave this. Blessings and a warning. Now let me kind of end here with practical application. I'll finish up as quickly as I can here. A few words of just practical application. If you are right now single, but you intend to one day marry, realize that this season in your life affords you some opportunities that will not be there later. Use them now. And also now is the time to decide things. Now is the time to figure out your convictions and then stand on those convictions and decide that you will not compromise them? Do you want your marriage to be a God-honoring marriage? You young girls, do you want a husband who is going to sit your family down and give instruction? You men, do you want a wife who is going to take her, her ministry of nurturing children seriously? Do you want a marriage and family that revolves around glorifying God? Now's the time to settle those convictions and decide the things that you will not settle for. Now's the time to start eliminating prospects by the character that you believe is right. Now's the time to be thinking of these things. You who are single and believe that you will stay that way. Maybe you just intend to stay that way. See your position the place where God has you as an opportunity. Labor to leverage your life for the glory of God. Strive for contentment and joy in these things. Serve him well and you will have great rewards. So remind yourself of the great reward you will have in the kingdom when emptiness and heartache sets in. Church family, let us love well. Let us love our church family well. And some of this will involve reaching out to those who are in places of loneliness. Let me say a word to you who are widowed. You do need to know that the Bible says you are free to marry again. I have found that there's a, there's a great deal of misunderstanding in this regard right here. Marriage is a lifelong covenant, not an eternal one, which means if you are widowed, you're not cheating on your spouse if you choose to marry. Um, in, in fact, in another place in 1 Timothy, uh, the scripture addresses this whole concept again. And it says, if you're less than 60 years old, it's probably a good idea for you to go ahead and get married again. Why? He brings up the exact same points that he makes here because of the temptation to eventually fall to sexual sin. Know that you are free to marry or free to remain single. Use wisdom in what you choose. Let me say a, young, a word to you young men in the room. Young men, there's a movement in our culture of perpetual adolescence. Just living to goof off, running from responsibility, living to serve self. So in that state, there is a staying single, but it's for all of the wrong reasons. It's not for the purpose of leveraging life for the usefulness of God. It's for the purpose of worshiping self as a God. Young men, don't buy it. Don't buy into it. Don't, don't live this waste of a life existence. What are you going to show to God on the day of judgment as what you did with your one precious God-given life? What are you going to show? I just think it would be really embarrassing to show up with video game time while Amy Carmichael is presenting the souls of thousands. What an embarrassing thing on that day. Oh, young, young men, hear me when I say there is always a shortage of qualified men. 
And I don't care if we're talking about McDonald's or the church or marriage. There is a shortage of qualified men. Get equipped, step up, and step in. That's really the essence of what it means to be a man according to biblical principles. Get equipped, step up, and step in. Be different. Young women, consider singleness. Oh, consider what you could do. I knew a group of, of college young ladies who every summer they traveled to a mountaintop in Peru and spent the summer amongst a village that had no church. They did this on three multiple, three uh, summers right in a row. And by the grace of God, souls were saved as they shared the gospel. My understanding is that a small church was planted by college students using their summers well. Oh, what you could do. And young women, young women who intend to one day marry, settle convictions and do not compromise them. And if I may go back to the unqualified men thing, I just cannot tell you how many conversations I have with young women who say this. I want to marry a godly man. I can't find one. What a, what a sad place for the church to be in. But young women, settle convictions, don't compromise. Wait if you must. Wait if you must. Follow the Lord, use your single years well, however long in his timing it ends up being. For some, marrying young is the most God-honoring way you can live. But for others, consider singleness. That's the call here. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, I pray take these truths and instruct us, show us, help us to see. Help us to live in light of these truths and obedience. All of the things that I said that could have been said in a better way, please correct them in the minds of the hearers. All of the ways that what I've said could be misunderstood, I pray that they will not be. Please, God, lead us to the truth. Lead us to live to obey you. Please help us, oh God. God, I pray for any in the room that have not yet turned from their sins to trust Christ to be saved. Lord, I pray that some of what we've talked about today of the purpose of life will just haunt them, will bring them even as they lay on their beds to want to be right with you. And I pray that you will bring them to salvation, bring them to trust you, O oh God. Make us to be a church family that pleases you and obeys you. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Lord bless you all. Have a great week. Thanks for listening, and we hope that this week's message on the subject of singleness has a deep impact on your life. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.